Hi, we're here from Curiosity.com to help you get smarter in just a few minutes. I'm Cody Goff. And I'm Ashley Hamer. Today, you'll learn about why you don't have to sacrifice pleasure to maintain self-control, why modern scientists still use old-timey weather balloons, and how to overcome the feeling that you're the one doing all the work. Let's satisfy some curiosity on the award-winning Curiosity Daily. Woo! More on that later. According to researchers, you don't have to sacrifice pleasure to maintain self-control. And this is good news, obviously. Because for a lot of us, having self-control means not eating that piece of cake, or not buying that new phone, or not watching yet another episode in our latest Netflix binge. An international team of marketing researchers says that the simple act of denying yourself pleasure is not the key to self-control. Because it's not a loss of self-control if you don't think you'll regret your decision later. So take food, for example. Lots of scientific studies measure self-control by looking at food choices. You know this from studies we've covered in the past. Well, for this new paper published in the Journal of Consumer Psychology, researchers reviewed nearly 300 studies about food. And they found that nearly all of those studies would basically pit healthy food against unhealthy food. You know, chocolate cake, soft drinks, and french fries, bad. Fruit salad, granola bars, and yogurt, good. Seems relatively logical, but the researchers behind this new paper found that eating indulgent food doesn't necessarily mean you lack self-control. Instead, a choice has to include two things for it to mean that you failed at self-control. First, it has to come along with anticipated regret, as in you think you'll regret it later. And second, it has to violate a long-term goal you've been working toward. If the choice doesn't meet those requirements, then it's not a self-control failure. So contrary to most studies on self-control, ice cream, french fries, and pizza are not inherently bad. They could just be delicious, pleasurable eating choices that are also high in fat. Good to eat in moderation, of course, but not worthy of feelings of shame and failure. When it comes to weight loss and overconsumption, the study's authors say the best practice is not to think about building up walls of self-control, but rather to eliminate the need for self-control at all. This could involve some reframing. What if we think less about denying ourselves nice things and instead focus on finding more pleasure? A person with weight loss goals is capable of both eating a slice of cake and having self-control. If you know a small piece won't undo all of your hard work losing weight, and almost always it won't, then you can indulge without feeling immense regret and shame after. The same goes for non-food indulgences. It's okay to watch Netflix before you finish your work or buy yourself something nice you haven't budgeted for. As long as you know it won't derail your goals and you won't regret the decision, enjoy yourself. Pleasure is a good thing. And remember, everything in moderation. And I think this is really important to remember also when you're judging other people's choices because I cannot stand it. When I, like, say, grab a donut... When someone goes, oh, you're so you're so lucky that you can eat that or something like that, it, it drives me crazy. And the opposite is also true when I don't eat the donut and someone else does. If that person says, oh, you're so good, I'm so bad. Like, no, you're not. Like, you're, you're enjoying something. Don't yes. make my choice about you. <laughs> yes, every indulgence is not an automatically bad failure of self-control. Absolutely. When you think about scientific research, you probably think about cutting-edge equipment like electron microscopes or fMRI machines. So why do modern scientists still use old-timey weather balloons? You know, those big rubber balloons attached to, like, a shoebox full of equipment? 
Well, it turns out that just like the rest of us, scientists have budgets they have to stick to. And balloons are both cost-effective and reliable enough to have worked for more than a century. They cost a few hundred dollars, which is pretty cheap compared to a high-altitude rocket. Those can cost several hundred thousand dollars. When you consider that more than half a million balloons are used globally each year, the cost factor really does start making sense. So in terms of what weather balloons actually are, they really haven't changed much since scientists started using them around the turn of the 20th century. A scientist fills a synthetic rubber balloon with hydrogen or helium until it's about five feet across. That's about a meter and a half. Hydrogen is the cheapest option and it lifts better, but helium is much less explosive. The bottom of the balloon is tied to a thing called a sond, which is basically a shoebox packed with instruments that measure the atmosphere. Those include a thermistor to measure temperature, a hygrister to measure humidity, and a barometer to measure air pressure. Transmitters were added in the 1930s so scientists could retrieve measurements wirelessly rather than waiting for the balloon to come back down. When it's released, the balloon rises and expands as the air pressure around it drops until it reaches nearly 30,500 meters, where it pops. A small parachute delivers the sonde safely back to Earth, where scientists can then analyze their data. These days, meteorological organizations at roughly 800 locations around the world release weather balloons twice per day. That's 1,600 balloons a day, even before you count the considerable number of amateur launches. High-altitude weather data helps us predict not only the week's weather forecast, but also oncoming storms and other natural disasters, long before instruments on the ground can. NASA even uses weather balloons to study meteor showers, the radiation belts, and other near-space phenomena. Not bad for an old-timey technology we've been using to study the skies for more than 100 years. Today's episode is sponsored by Mova Globes, rotating globes powered by light. Mova Globes don't use any batteries or cords. Instead, hidden magnets provide the movement. These globes turn on their own when they're exposed to ambient light using a technology that's the first of its kind. That's right. The technology is even more cutting edge than the weather balloons scientists use today. There are 40 different designs of Mova Globes, including world maps, outer space, and even famous works of art. I have a Mova Globe of Mars sitting on my desk, which uses images from NASA. And I'm not the only one. Elon Musk owns a Mars globe, too. No matter which design you choose, Mova Globes are the perfect decor for a conversation starter, not to mention a great gift for the person who has everything. And right now, during their special holiday promotion, you can get 15% off everything, plus free shipping. This is their biggest deal of the year. So please visit MovaGlobes, M-O-V-A Globes dot com slash curiosity and use coupon code curiosity, that's C-U-R-I-O-S-I-T-Y, for 15% off your purchase, plus free shipping. One more time, that's movaglobes.com slash curiosity, code curiosity. Chances are, at some point, you've worked on something and felt like you were the one who did all the work. Like, for example, this thing that happened to me in college. I was always emptying the dishwasher. I was always cleaning the bathroom sink. And I started to get kind of resentful of my roommate. And then one day, out of the blue, she comes and she tells me that she's stressed out because she's the only one who does housework. And I'm like, what? But this is a real bias, and both of us were falling prey to it. It happens because of a phenomenon known as overclaiming. That's the tendency for people to believe they're doing more than their fair share of the work. Researchers tested this back in 1979 when they asked married couples to rate how much they contributed to 20 different household activities. Those included both positive and negative things, by the way. So you might say you do 50% of the laundry, or you start 60% of the arguments. 
And it turned out that most of the time, the self-rated scores from each partner together added up to more than 100%. Most participants overestimated their contributions on 16 of the 20 items. And what's more interesting is that this included the negatives, like causing arguments. That's key because it shows that overclaiming isn't just about feeling good about yourself. It's more about being unaware of other people overall. And that's the key to fixing it. Simply put, pay more attention to everyone else. That's according to Nicholas Epley, who's a behavioral science professor who helped coin the term overclaiming. In an experiment, Epley and his colleagues asked teams of competing researchers to spend a second considering the contributions of others on their team before considering their own. This not only cut down their overestimation of their own contributions, but also made them more likely to say they'd work with the other researchers in the future. So next time you're angrily washing a dish left in the sink, stop to think about what the other people in your house have really done to help out. Before we wrap up, we have to announce that Curiosity Daily was recognized as the best technology and science podcast in the 2019 Discover Pods Awards. We are so happy. Yeah, your vote helped us win. And according to what data we're able to get our hands on, people were voting for us in more than 90 countries. Which is incredible. We don't have time to name them all, but thank you so much to our listeners in Azerbaijan, South Africa, Argentina, Uruguay. The list goes on. Australia, <laughs> Australia, Germany, the UK, I mean, basically everywhere, just all around the world. You are the best. I promise we won't say we're the award-winning Curiosity Daily on every episode, though we may throw it in a couple times yeah. in the next couple of weeks. <laughs> Um, but it was a really cool way to close out 2019. We work really hard on the podcast and, of course, on curiosity.com in general. And it's awesome to just feel like people really care. And it, like Ashley and I were both actually touched by it. We're, we're just really excited right now. And, and, um, and we wanted to say thank you. It can get a little lonely in this podcast studio. So it's really great to, to get that feedback from you and uh, know that you really like the show. Yeah. So... That having been said, what else got us excited about today's episode, Ashley? Well, I love that researchers are really confirming the fact that self-control is not about sacrifice. Self-control is just about following your goals and doing things that you're not going to regret. Yes. I am no longer going to feel bad about getting a deep dish pizza once in a while. Good. And this is especially relevant for me as the holiday season comes up because my favorite drink during the holidays may or may not involve eggnog. Right. So, I remember this about you. Yeah. So uh, I may be putting on a couple pounds, but you know what? It's not my goal to not do that. So uh, I'll, I'll just work it off in January like everybody else does at overcrowded gyms. Well, don't do that either. Okay. <laughs> and I love that scientists still use weather balloons because they're cheap and effective. Hey, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. And it's kind of normal to feel like you're the one doing all the work, but you could get over it by just paying more attention to the people around you. Who knew? Yeah, empathy goes a long way. Yeah. Today's stories were written by Ashley Hamer and Kelsey Donk and edited by Ashley Hamer, who's the managing editor for Curiosity.com. Script writing was by Cody Goff and Sonia Hodgen. Curiosity Daily is produced and edited by Cody Goff. Join us again tomorrow to learn something new in just a few minutes on the award-winning Curiosity Daily. Award-winning! And until then, stay curious. On the Westwood One Podcast Network.